Hi, and welcome to The Student Sums It Up. I'm Maggie. And I'm Sam. And every week, we sit down with our writers to give you the scoop on Amherst College's latest news. Today, March 30th, we'll talk about the Black Art Matters Festival, updates to the college's climate action plan, a new faculty member in the Black Studies Department, and student uproar surrounding a recent move by the Amherst College Police Department. Stay tuned. So first up, I'm sitting down with Managing News Editor Tana Galalio to talk about her piece on the college's recent meeting about their climate action plan. Hi, Tana. Hi. Um, so first and foremost, when did this meeting take place and what was like the impetus behind holding a meeting? So on March 21st, the college held a virtual town Hall to discuss the most recent updates to its climate action plan, which aims to achieve carbon neutrality on campus by 2030. The meeting covered the college's commitment to pursuing climate action by fundamentally overhauling its entire campus energy system and moving to a low carbon and eventually carbon neutral system. Awesome. So since this was a town hall, does that mean that any member of the college community could attend, like faculty, staff, students, etc.? Yes, there was a Q&A portion after the presentation was delivered. Okay, awesome. I'd love to talk about that, but first, let's go over the presentation. Um, what exactly, what tangible steps has the college taken to work towards this carbon neutrality goal? The meeting highlighted the college's participation in the new solar energy facility in Farmington, Maine, that through a virtual purchase power agreement provides zero carbon electricity to institutions in the New England College Renewable Partnership, which includes Amherst, Bowdoin, Hampshire, Smith, and Williams. So that new solar farm now provides 50% of electricity consumed on campus. And it's a bit much to explain, but the electrons from Maine aren't actually traveling to campus. It's instead through this agreement with the other schools where they're purchasing credits from the farm for renewable energy, but not using that energy themselves. So it still makes our electricity carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. um, they are also changing our steam-powered fossil fuel-based heating system to a ground source and air source heat pump system, which is about three to six times as efficient as the college's boilers or chillers, which compose its current heating system. Awesome. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, last semester we were talking about like this, maybe it was like this plan was in the works to source energy from this from this one uh, renewable energy farm. Um, so is this the actualization of that plan that they had first announced back in the fall? It is. I think I'm not you'll have to fact check me on this. But yeah, of I course. Think they came up with this idea in 2017. And it took them five years? Well, they had to build the solar farm. Oh, OK. Yeah. And they okay, did that okay. in collaboration with these other colleges. So now moving on to the Q&A portion, which is probably one of the more important parts of these town halls. Um, what were comments, were there any themes you noticed in the comments people were making or the questions they asked? I thought one of the most valuable questions was why the college had chosen to partner with these other colleges with this new solar facility rather than building their own solar facility and using that 
renewable energy on campus? And the answer was that it was the most cost-effective way Amherst could find to obtain green energy on campus. And Jim Brassard, who is the chief of campus operations, explained how it's a scale economy. So even though Amherst has a large amount of admissions, um, Jim Brassard, who is the chief of campus operations, discussed how the power purchase agreement is the most cost-effective way Amherst could find to obtain green energy on campus because it's a scale economy. Um, and even though Amherst has large carbon emissions as an independent with only our demand at play, it would be less cost-effective to develop our own renewable energy source rather than combining our demands with the demands of these other institutions. Were there a lot of students at this meeting? There were not too many students attending the meeting, which really focused on like technical and scientific updates to the plan as well as specifics about the cost of the plan. Yeah, so it makes sense why people wouldn't come. Um, that being said, did anyone use this meeting as an opportunity to criticize the administration for its um, climate action plan, as many students have been doing uh, since, you know, their goal for carbon neutrality was announced um, yeah. last fall? So one of the goals they emphasized in the meeting was that the college is completely committed to achieving carbon neutrality by overhauling its entire campus energy system rather than just purchasing offsets. Although they did note in the meeting how there are still going to be residual admissions that are not directly accounted for by changes to our energy process on campus. Um, there's going to be a reserve fossil fuel system staying in place for a backup system um, in case there's peak energy demand or power goes out. And those emissions are going to be offset through purchased carbon offsets. Um, but that's just going to be a very small amount. Of it'll be a very small amount. And oh, this is a good one. So senior lecturer in biology and environmental studies, Professor Rachel Levin, told the student that the cap is similarly ambitious to other institutions' plans, but that its emphasis on infrastructural changes makes it relatively unique. So she said that in its original design committee, which was called the Amherst Climate Action Task Force, of which she was a member, was very cognizant of the dangers of offsets and that they're hard to monitor and don't necessarily provide true carbon emission reductions. Mm -hmm. So she's hoping that when the college's final portfolio comes out before 2030, that most of those emissions are not made through offsets. And given the current plan, it seems like that will be happening. Awesome. Thank you, Tana. Thank you. Up next, we're sitting down with Managing Arts and Living editor Alex Branfenbrenner. Yes? Yes. That's how you pronounce it? Yeah, it's okay. a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Alex Branfenbrenner to talk about uh, the Black Arts Matter festival that happened this past weekend. Hi, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So before we get into the student interviews you did with the performers and the artists who were at the festival, could you just give us a little summary of what this festival was, when it happened, and, you know, what, like, what the mission of it was? Sure. So this was the fifth anniversary of the Black Arts Matters Festival. It was on Thursday, March 24th in the Powerhouse. Um, it was kind of an unusual format. There was a projector and students did pre-interviews alongside pieces of artwork. Mm -hmm. So it was like, um, like a mixed media show. There were also two MCs, one from the Black Student Union, the other from the Caribbean Students Union. Um, and there was also dance performances and music performances. So it was a really engaging show and there was a lot of different things to watch. It also finished with a DeSac performance. So that was really great. Wow, nice. Um so you mentioned that this was the fifth anniversary of the festival. What are its origins? How did it come to be in the first place? So it was founded in 2018 by Zoe Okoto, who graduated in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, she wanted a space for Black students to represent their art. So it started as a small gathering of friends and artists just in a dorm room, or just in a dorm. And then... Over the years, it gained funding and grew in size. So now it's funded by the Mead Art Museum, the Multicultural Resource Center, the Black Student Union, and the Arts at Amherst Initiative. Awesome. Could you talk about the um, different types of performances that there were and different types of media? I know that you mentioned that there was um, some dance performances. Um, were there art displayed was there were there photographs i would say if if you t if you talk to any of the artists in particular maybe we could focus in on the yeah. artists you talk to and the work that they presented mm -hmm. at cool. the festival so just as a preface the event was originally going to be in the mead but they had to switch to the powerhouse last minute because stern's chapel mm -hmm. which is right in front of the mead is Fall. falling <laughs> <Yeah>. it's collapsing <laughs> yeah so the mead is I closed <laughs> um an unfortunate consequence of that was that the artists could not present their art physically. The physical pieces were not there. That being said, they did those interviews alongside photos of their art, so we got to see it and engage with them. Um, you asked about what performances there were. So there were two spoken word poets. That was E.J. Collins and Quincy Smith. Um, there were two musical performances. One of them was by Stanley Jackson. He rapped uh, an original song called Sicker Than You, which was really great. I was able to interview him and he was very down to earth and forward. And interestingly, it was only his second live performance ever. And yet he was such a compelling rapper. It was really great to see. And then the other musical performance was, it was a duo. So Jerome, Jerome Raymond sung and Gregory Smith played guitar. Ooh, and they were so good. They were really, really great. Like they had. <laughs> I've seen them perform live at uh, Marsh, like Marsh Coffee Houses. Yeah, they're awesome. Like really well rehearsed, like funky and improvisational, yeah. and so engaging. And I talked to Jerome for this article, and he seems like he really enjoys storytelling, and only came to start songwriting after the pandemic when he had more time. So that was really fun to hear about. Mm -hmm. I think he actually has an EP out. 
Yes, he um, does. Yes, he mentioned that to me. So, yeah, definitely go check that out. He's an amazing musician. Um, oh, as a, as a little side note, so in my article, we're trying to support these Black artists further, so we're putting all their social media links at the bottom oh, of the article. Cool. We don't normally do this for, like, other student productions, but the event really had a spirit of promotion and support so i wanted to try to continue that yeah for sure so yeah that being said if you're interested in hearing more of uh jerome's music or any of the other artists we talk about just check out our print edition or check out the article online um to find their their social medias and their links could you also talk about the other artists that you talked to sure so i wasn't able to speak to all the artists but um i talked to quite a few so one of the artists I talked to was Nevia Waldron, who's class of 24. She had an acrylic painting called Floating in a Gentle Abyss. So it was a hand floating atop, like, moving water with a bunch of flowers. It was a very cool piece. Um, another piece I enjoyed was from Mayel Sanin, class of 24, who usually works in pencil but presented a final project from Photography One at Amherst. So that project was called Mayel in Bloom, again, using a lot of flowers. And she told me a funny story about how, so the photos are very picturesque. She's laying on a field and like the sun's hitting here and she has flowers in her hair. It's very beautiful. But when she was actually taking the photos, like sports teams are running by and she was like <laughs> holding her arm up and laying in the field and like rolling <laughs> around. And, but it turned out to a really wonderful final product. Um, Another artist I interviewed was Tia McKinney, who actually writes for my section. Um, her piece was titled Roots, and it was inspired by a model or a person she saw on Instagram during the Black Lives Matter kind of art movement on Instagram. So she was drawn to this woman because um, really prominently sported the do-rag and braids and kind of a um, in profile. Um, so that was also a really nice piece. And finally, I talked to Zachary Rivers, who is class of 24E, who is in fact one of my roommates. Oh, so awesome. um, he had a, a print that he did in his print class here that was an eye, and in the eye was a globe. So of course, it's just a black and white image because it's a, um, it's a woodblock print, but it was nice talking to him. Yeah. Did you by any, do you by any chance know who is in charge of organizing the event, what individual or club, and did you get a chance to speak with them at all? Yeah, so I talked to Kai Amadou, who's class of 22. Um, he was the Black Art Matters event coordinator. Okay. Student coordinator. Okay. I don't know if sense. He was the Black Arts Matters student coordinator. So he also worked with uh, Kendall Green, but I only spoke to him. Okay. Did he have anything uh, to say about, you know, the event or, uh, you know, his work in um, putting it together? Yeah, so um, he said that he was really impacted by the sense of creativity of the artists. He said that he was also impressed how experimental he was. I have a quote for him. Every single artist really gave it their all and put a lot of spirit and personality into their work. As for why he thought the festival was important, I have another quote to share. He said, Black art to me is a demonstration of black imagination and how black people my age and the generations we never got to talk to are conversing in each other in an artistic way. So I think he was also drawn to the diverse backgrounds of all of the artists and how their art was so different and the performances were just, 
and the performances were so different from each other, but they came together in a really cohesive way and a really impactful way. Awesome. I think that's a perfect place to end. Mm -hmm. um, do you have anything else you want to share that we haven't asked about explicitly? Nope. Read my article to see the images. <laughs> yeah. And to oh, support yeah. these Oh, yeah. See all the images, get all of the social media links, do all that good stuff. Thank you so much, Alex. No worries. Now we're sitting down with managing sports editor Leo Kamen to talk about his profile on a new faculty member, uh, Professor Stefan Bradley. Hi, Leo. Hi, Leo. Hi, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? Um, so before we get into the details, who is this? Who is Professor Bradley? Um, what does he teach? And what are his specialties, I guess? So, uh, Stefan Bradley is a new professor at Amherst um, for the 2021-2022 school year. Um, and he's a professor in both the Black Studies and History Departments. Um, and he also um, is going to teach some classes um, with Education Studies as well. Um, he's coming from Loyola Marymount University in L.A. Um, and his research interests um, are, are topics surrounding student activism, um, especially Black student activism. Awesome. Um, so how did Professor Bradley get to Amherst? What's his background like? Yeah, so he's from he's from Washington State. Um, and he sort of had a long academic career. He started um, in Illinois, um, then he moved to St. Louis University in Missouri, um, then Loyola Marymount, and then, like I said, moved to Amherst this year. Um, and there are a lot of interesting incidents in there, but that's sort of the, the, the shape of his career in general. Yeah, what were those interesting incidents? <laughs> yeah, so when he was teaching at St. Louis University um, in Missouri, he was there in 2014 uh, when Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer. Um, and I don't know how many people remember, but at the time there were massive uprisings, people taking in the streets and protesting. Um, and some of his students, as he talked to me about, were the, some of the first people in the streets. Um, and he talks about sort of the interesting process for him. And he, what he sort of said to me is like, he was never a person who was very um, protest oriented himself. He was never the person who was gonna go out into the streets. Um, and so at first on the, like there was lots of violence the first few nights. Um, and he was telling his students, like, I don't want you to go out there. Like it might be unsafe. Um, and then he really heard from them that like, they didn't care because this thing mattered so much to them um, that it was worth it. And that he said they, they felt helpless, like they had nothing else to do. Um, so what he said is like, this is a moment where he learned from his students mm -hmm. as opposed to the other way around. Um, and after that, he was in the streets and he said they were out there for almost a year. Um, he was in like community meetings. He was meeting with the sheriff. Um, yeah. So he said that was really like a transformative experience. Um, for like his scholarship, but then also just the way he views himself in relation to activism in general. Yeah, for sure. And how has he brought that philosophy to Amherst? Let's see. It's something I didn't, I didn't talk to him about too much. Um, but I think he said it, it just in general, it has just changed the way he views activism. And I think that he, um, one thing he recommended for Amherst students was, um, 
to acquaint themselves with um, sort of like the history of black thought in general, to not see like black people as a monolith, to see, he recommended like for Amherst students, like you should read the writings of black leftists, but you should also read black libertarians and black conservatives. Um, so I think sort of, um, yeah, as you said, it sort of changed his relation to his subject matter. So why did Professor Bradley decide to leave uh, St. Louis University and come to Amherst? Well, as I talked to him today on uh, Monday, March 28th, it was a freezing day in Amherst, and he said that it was hard for him to leave the, he, he said, quote, the sunny palm trees and Teslas of Los Angeles. <laughs> um, but he said that, you know, he, he, he kind of had, he, Amherst wasn't something he was thinking about, but then he went to an event through the Education Studies Department and interacted with Amherst students. Which is brand new, the Education yeah. Studies Department. So it's really interesting how, like, already this new department is opening up networking with, like, other universities. Yeah, I yeah, just thought I'd interject with Yeah, that. it's really awesome. And and he said through that event, um, he was able to interact with Amherst students, and he said he was, like, sort of blown away by them. Um, and then he said that, sort of already in his first semester and a half at Amherst, he's found um, that same like sort of passion for learning in a lot of his students. He says like students aren't scared when there are a lot of books on the syllabus and he really likes stuff like that. Um, so he says it's definitely the students and that throughout his academic career, the thing he's cared about is working with undergraduate students in general. Um, so yeah, Amherst seems like the perfect place for him. Does his passion for students and student activism pop up at all in his research? Yeah, so he says that he's still, he's, like, so he's done research on the past on, I think, he sort of seems to have an interest in, like, the convergence of um, sort of elite universities and then, like, just, like, broader ac um, activism. Mm -hmm. um, so he's written two articles or two books about um, Columbia University um, and the way that sort of, like, intertwined with um, community activism in Harlem. Um, and there, there was a, a plan to build a, a, a gym for Columbia University in a popular park um, in Harlem. And there is a, a group of community Columbia students who combined with community leaders um, to protest that. Um, and then his other book, his more recent book, is sort of just about how it was the influx of new, like newly accepted African-American students to Columbia and other elite schools um, that sort of like forced those schools to actually live out the, the liberal values that were in their mission yeah. statements um, and sort of like held them to account for the things that they claimed they cared about. And that's um, so interesting that that's a process that's still ongoing, even right here at Amherst. Exactly. And that's something if I had more time uh, to talk to him, I would love to hear his views on like the state of activism at Amherst College. Yeah. Um, so maybe a future story in the student. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, Leo, is there anything else you want to share about Professor Bradley or anything about your experience doing this interview and writing this profile that we haven't asked about explicitly? Well, I have one thing I forgot to say. This is not my actual answer. I have one thing I forgot to say for oh, yeah, um, for, for sure. why Go he ahead. wanted to come to Amherst, which I think is pretty important. Um, so I would just say um, he said, like, for him, the thing that he that 
he also said was um, that Charles Hamilton Houston, um, who's an African-American graduate of Amherst College, is one of his heroes. Um, and then he also talked about alumni such as Charles Drew and William Hasty. Um, and he said, like, if people like this could go to Amherst, he said, um, quote, I guess I could do well at a place where Charles Hamilton Houston was. So um, I think sort of the history um, of Amherst College was also part of his decision. Yeah. That's something we I don't think we mention um, enough when we're criticizing the college. Um, and it's like, um, I guess sort of it's liberal hypocrisy. It's histories of liberal, liberal hypocrisies is how many, not how many, but just we need to appreciate the powerful black thinkers who have come out of this school yeah, more. No. Um, and the, the powerful black thought that continues to come out of this school, even as the institution is working against that sort of thing in many ways. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really, yeah, I mean, there's so many even like now, like in recent years. Too, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, back to the final question I asked. Um, was there anything we didn't mention that you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I think one thing, so I mean, I'm used to writing about sports for the student, but I think I just, I found it really interesting how even just doing like a little bit of research about a professor you've never heard of, um, with the sort of professors we have at Amherst, like can lead you down a super interesting rabbit hole oh, yeah. <laughs> of this story. Like I, I Googled him and then watched videos of him on MSNBC yeah. with burning buildings behind him. Like that's not what I was expecting from the profile. Um, and I, I've sort of had experience like that before where I Google a professor and see like totally wild, interesting experiences. Um, so I think it's, it was very eye-opening and interesting in that way. Yeah, there's so many, like our faculty are huge resource here and they have so much experience in the world and in academia and so many amazing insights to offer. It's really incredible. Well, thank you, Leo. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Today, I sat down with managing news editor, Kayla McQuilkin, and discussed the new movement of ACPD to unmark their cars. Kaylin, can you tell me a little bit about this movement? Yeah, so we are reporting on the story this week because while ACPD has always had two of their five vans unmarked, um, in the past two weeks they've unmarked the remaining three so that all their vans are now unmarked uh, and that prompted conversation among students who realized that this change had happened and so we decided to look into it and talk to ACPD about the changes as well as hear from students what their thoughts are. Yeah what was um, the reasoning that ACPD gave? So um, Chief of Police John Carter explained that since 2020 when um, more calls to defund or abolish the police started happening like around the nation, but specifically on Amherst campus. ACPD has made some changes to its department um, in the effort to try and make students feel more comfortable on campus. And so unmarking the vehicles was one aspect of this change. Uh, and ACPD's thinking was that this would help students feel less alarmed or um, uh yeah, like less alarmed or uncomfortable with the presence of ACPD vans on campus. Can you give us a little bit? So when did they first unmark the first two vehicles? I'm not sure of the exact day that they first unmarked it, but it was sometime last week. Oh, they had. So it had only been two vehicles unmarked last week. That's right. Yeah, And then it was this week 
that three vehicles were unmarked? Yeah, so they have five total vehicles. Okay. Two have been unmarked for several years now. Oh, okay. And those okay. were just used for one of the officers said that they're used you know not usually for officers patrolling around but if they had to drive a student somewhere or something and then now they unmarked the other three so all of acpd's vehicles are now unmarked okay so when was the first so you said that they have they had two that were unmarked for several years yeah and that was just for like functions facility kind of uh, I I wouldn't necessarily say that. I'm not 100% sure about, like, everything they used those vehicles for. It was just for, for like, student. I'm not, re- I'm not really sure what. I okay. think they've always had to on Mark. But, yeah, but, but the thing was just that, like, when officers were patrolling around campus, they had, they typically would use marked, marked vehicles. vehicles. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what student reactions have been to this? Yeah, so for the most part, the students that or the students that we've been able to speak to so far um, are very alarmed by this change and definitely have expressed that it makes them feel less comfortable, if anything, on campus um, because of the fact that you can't be aware whether ACPD is like around or not, and it just would look like a normal car. Uh, many students express that if ACPD wants to work to decrease its presence on campus and help students feel more comfortable, it should do that in a complete way rather than just masking their presence, you know? Um, And so people have said that other students have testified that it feels like a good example of the ways in which ACPD acts as if it's listening to student demands, but then makes changes that don't fundamentally address the issue and in some cases actually make students feel more uncomfortable or worried on campus. What have been other ways in which ACPD has been trying to make their presence more comfortable for students? Because is that what the whole like goal behind unmarking these vehicles was? Yeah, that's right. So two of the other examples that uh, ACPD gave was designating some of their roles to community safety officers who are like of a different department. Um, So ACPD has a decreased presence in student dorms now. And then another change that they mentioned was uh, getting a police dog uh, which was a change that was meant to help students feel more comfortable around officers. And have there been any, have you gotten any student reactions in terms of these two changes or? Yeah, I think students um, in general definitely summed up that the reaction to students saying that they feel uncomfortable with an ACPD presence on campus should be to directly ask and address why students feel uncomfortable with that presence and then reduce it wherever possible, rather than just trying to hide or make that presence seem nicer. Uh, Many people testified that they didn't feel as if this change was getting to the root of the problem that students have raised with ACPD. Um, And then also the even worse, it in a way gives more power or uh, presence to the police department in the same way that the police dog did as well. Is there anything else that you'd want to add when it comes to these changes? Yeah, I think another important thing to add is that we got an interview with one of the individual ACPD officers who um, shared with the student that although they uh, like respect and listen to their boss's decisions, they feel a bit weird and unsure about the decision to unmark the vans, um, just because now as an officer who is actually going to be using 
those cars and vans, they realize that it's going to be much harder for people to actually rely on the police for help when they might need it. Uh, that's what this police officer told, this ACPD officer told us. Well, it was so nice interviewing you today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Special thanks to the team at The Student, including Ethan Samuels, Lynn Lee, Tana Delalio, Kaylin McQuilkin. Thank you also to our audio editor, Spencer Michaels. Once again, I'm Sam. And I'm Maggie. And we'll see you next week on The Student Sums It Up. Bye! <laughs>